Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolfer, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolfer is a professor at Rutgers University, Newark, and an award-winning journalist. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Kathleen Jordan is the daughter of the late Hamilton Jordan, who former President Jimmy Carter said devised a political strategy to get a peanut farmer from Georgia elected president of the United States. Kathleen, a 25-year-old television producer and writer, is finishing the memoir her father had nearly completed before his untimely death in 2008, when he was 63 years old. She said that editing the book has given her and her two brothers the rare and strange privilege of learning about their father in the past tense. So why did you decide to finish the memoir? It was timely. It needed to happen. It kind of was an, it was an unclosed chapter in my dad's life. And it didn't feel right that it hadn't been finished. Um, my dad had, had written a lot. He wrote about his years in the Carter presidency, and he wrote about his battles with cancer of various kinds. And six different kinds. Six different kinds, to be specific, and terrible. It's it's I, it's kind of amazing to think back <laughs> about the fact that he had six cancers. I was alive for four of them, um, but I remember them all pretty vividly. It was just kind of horrible. I know that it's it's you you can't be alive today and not know somebody who has or has died from cancer. So I, I know my experience is not unique, but. He was kind of swamped with this illness and I think would have really liked to have been able to finish the book. And he couldn't, and he died before he could. And so that just, it felt like, it felt like we needed to complete his legacy, the three of us, my, my brothers and myself. Did he know that you were going to write about him? He didn't know. Um, and I think that he didn't know. I think he. I think that he would be pleased that we had. I don't think that it would have surprised him. Um, we all. It's. He died at a time that was really kind of a, the formative years for all of us. I, my little brother was sixteen. I was nineteen, and my older brother was twenty-four and just out of college. So we were all kind of finding our bearings and becoming adults. So it was an interesting time for us to pause and reflect on the life of our father as a man. We kind of knew him as a dad. And I think, you know, any any kid, as they're growing up, they, they have a moment where they look back and realize that their their parents are more than their parents. They're people that have lives too. And it took, it, it unfortunately took our dad dying, I think, for us to understand the scope of his life. Of who he was. Exactly. To understand him and his his contribution to the world as a as a person and not just as you know the guy who wears sloppy clothes or drives us to dance practice or and oh. tells you to pick up your laundry <laughs> exactly <laughs> all of the kind of idiosyncratic things that we think of when we think of him all this he's had such a he had such a vibrant irreverent personality and um it's just funny to think of him in any other context except dad, but that, you know, that's what this has allowed us to do. So it's been an interesting exercise. That's a very 
that's a sterile word to use for it because it hasn't been an exercise. It's been a pleasure, but it's it's been a challenge too. Why is it a challenge? Well, it's a challenge because I think if if when my dad died, the, if you had asked him on his deathbed, "Is this book finished?" he would have said, "It's far from finished." And so, and he died in Atlanta at home. He died. Yeah, he died at home. It was we. I had just come back from my freshman year of college, and he, we had a big fight as a family. We were fighting about my my little brother was claiming that he wasn't going to go to college because he was sixteen, and he was just saying stuff because he was being a sixteen-year-old. And he, even though his dad was deathly ill, he still could act out and be a little rebel if he wanted to be. So we were all fighting about that. And it's kind of like it was kind of like this giant storm all between us, and then we all came back together and had this moment of peace and reconciliation. And I think that my dad just decided, okay, this is time. It's time to die. And so he had a dream that he was that that doctors had told him that it wasn't going to get any better. And so then the following morning he told us that, and then three days later he was dead. And you offered him a hookah before he died. I did. <laughs> I remember. I saw it. I did. I did. I did offer him a hooker. My dad had a really. Um, and his response? Sure. No, I mean, we we. I was joking with him about about what he could possibly want in his last hours on the earth, and he suggested a hooker, and or I suggested a hooker, and then I think we ultimately decided on a glass of water. And he wanted he a drug to sleep. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He did. He wanted weed. He said that he'd never touched a drug in his life, but I think he was just being silly. Yeah. How much did it teach you about your father? Writing this book, finishing this book. Yeah. It's it taught me a lot about him, and it's it's. I think that there's something there's something to the way that men of his generation in the South, actually just people of his generation from the South, the way that they talk about their past, they, they like to, they like to use phrases and kind of hide things in colloquialisms. For instance, his, he says in his, in the book a lot, and we heard this a lot growing up, that his father was very emotional. But when you actually read the descriptions of what that means and how that played out, it was clear that he had some, he had some mental illness, but it's, a, it's such a Southern man thing. It's there's something in the Prince of Tides that re- refers to this, but it's like a Southern man's way is to laugh. Or I'm horribly misquoting it, but my it was in my dad's personality to joke about things, and so I feel like from the book I've learned the I've learned the real details of certain parts of his life, which has really been cool for me. And he grew up during a period when segregation was at its height, and he dealt with people who were who wanted to keep it that way. What do you think yes. his reaction would be today if he found out that Barack Obama was president of the United States? What would it be like? He called it. He called it. I think that at that point, uh, President Obama, Obama hadn't secured um, the, the nomination. nomination, but... My dad totally called it. <laughs> he 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 was he was alive just long enough to see this kind of young guy arrive on the scene in Chicago, and he he, he said that that man's going to be president. So that that was a, that was cool. But I think that it's funny, but he's 
he's missing a whole new wave of, um, I mean, with with marriage equality, he's missing a whole new wave of human rights. And I'd, I, I think that I would be interested to see how he would react to it. Well, you're going to be living it for him, I think. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm. Uh, it seems less strange to me. I'm sure it would seem strange to him. You know, I think that this his people and his generation are are longing to look back and kind of think about the way that things have changed and why they've changed. I think that it's a really reflective time. I'd like you to read something from the book. Uh, just a minute, and that's the time that he found out that his grandmother was Jewish. Can it's, you tell us about that, and then I'd like you to read from the manuscript. Sure. So I think this, yeah, this kind of a little bit relates to what I was talking about in terms. That's of, why I brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. That's what. That's why you have this job. Um, it a little bit relates to the way that I was saying that there's a tendency of people of his generation to kind of hide hide behind hide behind things and uh and not really not really say what they're thinking and not really say what they're feeling and not be forthright with their opinions and it's this is just this moment when my father finds out as a full-fledged adult that his after being brought up baptist as Southern Southern Baptist, as, yes, that's a two very different things. <laughs> very Southern Baptist. Um, to find out that his maternal grandmother was Jewish, making his mother Jewish, um, it it was so shocking to him, and what continued to be such a shock to him is that he would dig for more information from his family and they never gave it to him. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO-FM 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is Kathleen Jordan. Kathleen Jordan. G-O-R-D-A-N. Nobody, <laughs> no one's going to know that, right? <laughs> Daughter of the late Hamilton Jordan who is editing and Kathleen is editing his unfinished memoir, which has turned into a memoir of her life as well. How about reading the moment when your father finds out that he's really not a complete, pure Southern Baptist from the South? So a tiny bit of background. This is in the in the narrative. This is a point where he's come back. He's at the funeral of his maternal grandmother, um, and he's just left the University of Georgia and driven to the funeral to spend time with his family. Maybe you could paint a picture of the people who were at the funeral and what happened as this was occurring, as he was learning this incredible piece of his personal life. About sure. his personal life. So he's he's there with his family. Um, this was his maternal grandmother. Her name was Murr, M-U-R, and his grandfather, Hamp, H-A-M-P, those are obviously not their their birth names, but those are their their southern names that were given to them by their grandchildren. And so there, he's there with his nuclear family and his extended family, as well as what they called at the time the hands. So all of the the hired help, all of the black help in the family, and they were they were at the funeral as well. How old was he at this time? 
he was in his early 20s. I think that he was 20 years old. 20 years old. Right. 20 years as a Southern Baptist, and all of a sudden, describe what happened. My eyes wandered as we waited for Hamp. Less than five yards to the right of Murr's burial site, I couldn't help but notice a large, weathered family marker with the name Gottheimer chiseled into the stone. Two dark, long slabs lay side by side in front of this marker. The writing on the slabs was not easy to read, but I could clearly make out the name Gottheimer at the top and the word Germany in the inscriptions on both. I had never seen nor heard that name before. It sure looked German to me, and it sure sounded Jewish to me. Standing just behind me was one of my Uncle Hamilton's oldest and dearest friends from childhood, Cliff Brooks, owner of the Chevrolet dealership in nearby Crawford. I turned and whispered in his ear, Cliff, who are those Jews buried next to my grandmother? Cliff looked surprised at my question. After looking around, Cliff cupped his hand over his mouth, leaned forward, and whispered quietly in my ear, Those are Miss Helen's parents. Then, after a pause, he added, Your great-grandparents. I was stunned. My great-grandparents? The Gottheimers? How could that be? I had never even heard that name before. My mind was spinning. Who were these people? They sure sounded Jewish to me. And he, originally, the title of the book was, of your memoir. Meet the Gottheimers. What's the title now? Uh, There is no title right now. (laughs) So we've untitled the Gottheimers. Right. Uh, I, I, that's still that's still a work the working title, but I think that I think it will probably change. It's an important moment in the book, but it is maybe not the watershed moment of the book. It's a it's a picture of his of his young life, and that's a big component of it. But a lot of it has to a lot of the book has to do with race relations and growing up in the South and the segregated South, and kind of coming to terms with what his family how his family had a, a part to play in that. And you came to terms with something, as you did not. The, suddenly, you didn't mind being from the South? That's true. <laughs> Let's say you said you were ashamed of your Southern heritage. You even used to tell your friends on your church basketball team that you were born in the North when you actually were born in Florida? That's correct. <laughs> All true. All true. All true. Um, I, when you also I, said you were the most Hispanic because you were close to Florida on that. Right, that exactly. Near Cuba, right. <laughs> I, I, if when I was younger, I preferred to think of myself that I was I was closer to Hispanic than Southern. That struggle within myself came from the ways that people make stereotypes about the South. I was in the South. I was living the South. That you was, don't sound like the South. I don't though. sound like the you South. You never had at all. a Southern accent. I say the word O I L very Southern. Besides, oh. Well, give us a sample of that. Just oh, as <laughs> olive oil. I just you can't get over that one. I I don't try. I used to try. Um, I I, when I was younger, I I just I wanted to. I I believed I believed what people thought about the South, and not for not for no reason. I I a lot of the people that I grew up around, even though they were well educated and you know came from came from loving families, a lot of people were really racist and really closed minded. But as I've come to live other places i just see that racism and and closed-mindedness come in different forms so it's not necessarily a greater evil because it comes from the south 
as a um, person who is familiar with humor, uh, a lot of people use humor to uh, to get over a lot of pain. And Definitely. you worked for Comedy Central uh, mm -hmm. before you uh, abandoned that for a while to uh, to work on the book. Mm -hmm. Is that is that Kathleen Jordan? It, I think so. I've always it's my brothers and I all have kind of we can we can look at ourselves and look at our parents and kind of notice what what qualities we have that are most that mirror them most closely and I think that one thing that I've always had is a streak a really strong streak of my father is his sense of humor and his irreverence and inappropriateness and um that that's a really strong part of who I am, and I, that's a really strong part of how I relate to my dad and his memory. Well, you said that you spent uh, at least four – you were with him for four of his six cancers. Yeah. That's not funny. No, and it wasn't funny at the time. Uh, but you have to you have to find a way to make it funny. You have to find a way to make it livable because otherwise it's – those those times are too dark, and you'll you'll drown in them. It's it's all about finding those moments of perspective and being able to pull back and look at your life and and recognize that there are still good elements. There, it's not all it's not ever all bad or ever all good. I mean, that's you know part of what I've learned just becoming an adult. You know, and it was a part of big part of my childhood too. And your parents started a uh, camp for uh, children who had cancer. My, they often get joint credit, but it was my wonderful mother who started the camp for children with cancer. My dad was a was a support. Um, they give your mother credit. It was my mom. Okay, good. No, we got that. Mom. We got that straightened out. <laughs> Historically, we don't want to make any mistakes about this. <laughs> People always say that it was my parents, but and that's I think that's that my dad was certainly there and supported my mother. But and your it was mother's my mom. and your mother now who is remarried and mm -hmm. her name is Dorothy. Dorothy Gr Jordan is still her name. Still her name. Okay. Yes, Dor Dorothy Jordan. And did you did you go to any of those camps? I yeah, I grew up going to. The camp for children with cancer, Camp Sunshine, and then my mom. When I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was nine, and my mom and my dad started a camp for children with diabetes, and so I have been going to that camp, and then since volunteering at that camp ever since. That's a really big part of my a really big part of my life and a part of who I am and how like the person that I've grown to be. That's a a really big community for me, an important community. And your father wrote a book called "No Such Thing as a Bad Day." Huh? Is that is that is that a familial thing <laughs> with all the stuff that you guys had to go through? Yeah, that's the. I mean, that was kind of his. That was his mantra, because I, I mean, I would, this is obvious, but there's no such thing as a bad day because when you are having a day, you're having a day. You know, that's you're alive. Um, you know, I think. There, there's, there was some irony looking back on that in his last cancer, par partially because once we were able to kind of call it as we saw it, which was very late in the game, he was dying. And that just is what it is. And uh, that was really – at that point, it was really hard for us to be positive and really hard for us to feel as though we could take every moment and be joyful about it because it was really – we knew. You know, he knew. He knew, I think, the last year of his life. And then I think we, like I said, we called it as we saw it not long before he died at all. 
So saying it's true made it true. That, and that was that was really hard. That was a hard point for us to come to. When you were, I was just I was just thinking about what you thought, what what you guys did to mem- memorialize him. I mean, uh, what would he? <laughs> you're laughing. You know what I'm getting? I'm, I'm getting it right. Well, let's tell everybody about it. Right? Don't laugh. Tell us. Oh, I mean, we all. This is. I can just say with some confidence that this is the last thing he would have wanted us to do. But my brothers and I all got tattoos um, of the state of Georgia and his initials and his birth year and his death year. It sounds sweet in concept, but he would have had a heart attack and died anyway if he'd known that we were going to get tattoos. So maybe better than it happened after he died. And he was from – I had I do some history, some research myself, and he was from not Albany, Georgia, as I would have said from a man from the New York. Correct. It's Albany, Georgia. Albania. Albania. No, it's like no. from Albany. Like no, 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 Albany. Albany. Albany? Albany. You just want... have to say it like you're... I can't. I'm it's not gonna, fine. You I'm, don't not, have... I'm not going to do it. I'm going to tell everybody they're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper as he's trying to say Al- Albany? Albany. Albany. <laughs> That's the voice of Kathleen Jordan, who is editing the memoir of her late father, Hamilton Jordan, the chief of staff of former President Jimmy Carter. Let's just talk about... Jimmy Carter calling up this guy, Hamilton Jordan, when he's a student. And Jimmy says to him something. The president says to him, "Um, I'd like you to work for me uh, to organize students for my gubernatorial campaign. And your father turns him down saying, I'm sorry, I have a job uh, spraying mosquitoes this summer. It seemed more important at the time, I think, but... Well, the kind of mis- the kind of people they have in Washington, mosquitoes kind of fit, don't they? <laughs> I think he might yeah, be right. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> he, but he did he changed his mind. And uh, what is it? let's see, he wrote this. Just as soon as he gave up the governor's race of killing insects was more important to him than my being governor. <laughs> he really said that. President Carter really said that. Yes, he did. What you what did you say when you read that? Well, I heard it for the first time. Uh, President Carter I was, was kind enough to write the introduction to the book, or rather the foreword to the book. I wrote the introduction. Um, and he retold in that introduction some of the things that he said in my father's eulogy, because my, my brothers and President Carter and myself eulogized my father at his funeral in 2008. And so I first heard, I first heard that. I'd heard this story, but I had never heard it quite like that. From you President weren't sure Carter's. it was real. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm sorry the mosquitoes are more important than your life being president, buddy. <laughs> A nice Southern Baptist boy right. saying, really sorry, yeah. huh? <laughs> Though I think once once he, um, once President Carter had him on his side, he was, he was the most loyal person to him in the world. He was so loyal. He, President Carter called my father on his deathbed, it was, I think it was the day that he died, or maybe the day before. The last day he was not com- completely lucid. And he called him the day before, and I was so struck. I've seen my father interact with President Carter a few times, but in this moment, the, my father was so weak, so physically weak, so emotionally weak. He'd spent the day, you know, after this the past 24 hours he'd known that he was dying he'd made that decision and his body was decaying he was reaching this end point and in a moment of such weakness 
for President Carter to call him on the phone and for my dad to still refer to him, to address him as Mr. President, was so touching to me. It was, it just was so, it was, it was to see the amount of reverence and respect and, um, he just held President Carter in such high esteem and that that was maintained even in that, that that moment, like I said, of weakness. It was just really cool for us to to be win- to bear witness to that, you know. You watched it? Yeah, we did. The we phone did. rang and you knew it was him or was he preparing to call? Was this just a sudden thing that came out I of nowhere? I think that we must have known it's all a blur. I mean, I don't know if you've ever like I'm sure you've been with somebody who's dying. It's and uh, people listening have have witnessed that or been a part of that. It's it's a world. Well, it's a, a whirlwind. Former, this is a former president of the United States right. calling someone who worked for him, uh, even despite the fact he had a job spraying mosquitoes, <laughs> and he's dying, and he he remembered to call him. Yeah, he he. I mean. I I hope I'm not speaking out of turn when I say, and he wrote this in the in the foreword that he loved my dad like a son. They were really close. They were they were uh, they were they were really close. I think that they weren't as they they didn't keep in close touch towards the end of his life. But President Carter would I think would have done anything for my dad, and vice versa. I know so that was a that was. That's, I didn't realize until I was eulogizing my dad at this funeral, and I'm like, okay, this is on C-SPAN right now. Like, I didn't even get it. I still don't get it. You know, Argo came out this past year, or I guess that was 2000, yeah, 2012. I still, it's, I still can't believe that my father was portraying. The movie about the movie getting those people out of Iran. Yeah, I just, I, it's every time that something. Comes up with my dad. I just, I'm, I, it's always, it's always shocking for me, surprising to me that people know who he is. That it's every time that happens, he's relevant. It's surprising to me because I think of him as just being my dad. That's not how I think of him. So it's interesting. I have an idea. Why don't you read what Jimmy Carter said about him? Sure. Hamilton devised a strategy that became famous. To solve one of the most intricate political riddles on earth, how do you get a relatively unknown Georgia peanut farmer elected president of the United States of America? We did what Hamilton proposed, and we went to the White House together. Although he rejected any formal title as chief of staff, he was naturally recognized by others as their leader. Hamilton was a driving force behind the Panama Canal Treaties, the Middle East peace process, the safe return of the hostages from Iran, and every other good thing that we attempted or accomplished while in Washington. His political skills were legendary, and so was his character. His charisma and sense of humor kept us afloat during the darkest times. That's, uh, I I wonder, one last question. Yeah. I just wonder, by now, by then, he had known that his uh, grandmother was Jewish. And when he had that role in uh, managing to create a peace treaty between Israel and its neighbors, that must have had an impact on him as well. It must have. That's it's that's one of the that's one of the biggest questions that I wished that I had been able to ask him when he was alive, because I think that he would have enjoyed having the opportunity to speak about it. But I know that um, 
I know that that it did come up. He speaks about this in the book. It did come up. His Jewish heritage came up when he was in Washington for the first time, when some journalist at a at a kind of I think trashy type of magazine or newspaper made claims that he'd said made anti-Semitic comments and. He responded, how could I, why would I ever do that? I'm, my mother is Jewish. So I think that was the first time he ever said it publicly, but I don't, no one, I don't think anything, anyone ever did anything with that information or. How about you? I think about it. I think about it. It's, to be honest, religion isn't a big part of my life anyway. Um, But I do think about it in terms of heritage. It's. Atlanta has a has a really big Jewish population, and a lot of my friends growing up were Jewish. So that's it's was less. It would have been less shocking to me to to think about to to discover it than it was for my dad. It was a very different time for him. Kathleen Jordan, thank you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for sharing your history and your family's history as well. Absolutely. And your late father's role in some of America's most historic moments. We'll be looking forward to reading your father's memoir when it's published. And I'm sure it will be. Thanks so much. Joanna Walper is a senior producer of Conversations with Alan Walper. Doug Doyle is executive producer. And Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer. Dana Damiani is our production associate. If you missed any part of our program, you can hear it all again on WBGO.org slash Walper or simply Google us. Conversations with Alma Wolper. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.